All right. Uh, I am really excited to introduce a special guest on today's episode of Sockers. Is that so? I'm speaking to Carlos Pereira, who is a partner at Bitcraft, which is um, one of the preeminent crypto Web3 um, VCs here in New York City. Uh, thanks for being on the show, Carlos. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So why don't we start off with your current assessment today of the VC landscape? There's a lot of noise around it in terms of valuations, in terms of deals being done. But from your perspective and your purview, how do you see the VC landscape today? Sure. Um, uh, it, it depends on which part of the VC asset class, given that there's um, a strong correlation between later the, the later the round, the more difficult valuations have been. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the Tiger Globals and a lot of that fast capital that came in over the last several years, um, crossover funds in general, and, and frankly, like pure VC funds as well, right? Not just crossover funds. Um, those categories got bid up pretty aggressively. And that's where um, you're really one, two, three years out from having to be judged by the public markets. Um, and so there's a lot of sensitivity there when you have large or um, when you have previously really attractive companies that IPO'd in college 2019, 2020 got bid up super heavy, like the Pelotons of the world, et cetera. When you're seeing those things down a ton, um, there's a very short feedback loop between that valuation shift and the valuation shift that you see in later stage rounds. Um, as you go towards the earlier stages, um, it eventually becomes hard. The, the valuations are, are more inflexible at the earlier stage because what you're funding is you're funding budget to develop a product or a content, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and you never want to end up with a broken cap table where the VCs and the seed round own 60% of the round. And so the consequence of that is like, you kind of have to operate within certain historical dilution bands for founders um, that limit assuming a constant budget, right? And of course, people will get fatter when times are easy. And so budgets will contract a little bit, which will provide some cover on, on rounds. Um, but you basically, you know, the lower, the earlier you go, the smaller the rounds, the least flexible valuation becomes. And so at the pre-seed stage, um, the impact is much, much smaller in valuations than at the Series E stage. Um, so for us, we're primarily Series Seed and Series A investors. And then we have some Series A companies or Series Seed companies that are today Series B or maybe one or another Series C company, but on average, our portfolio is relatively young um, and we invest relatively early. And so the part of the, the market that I spend most of my time um, is less disrupted. Now, the caveat to that is um, I lead the crypto investing strategy for Bitcraft. And obviously, crypto is a category that because the, the, the tokens created this really short feedback loop between public market liquidity and your seed investment, the the valuations got pushed up super fast, super hard as the tokens were doing abnormally well last year or last cycle. Um, and so they behave a little bit like that late stage class where all of a sudden your public comps are down 90%. And so obviously the series seed valuations um, are going to come down a ton too. And, and now they look more equity-like as opposed to operating a completely different ballpark of the equity segment. Absolutely. I'm glad that you kind of went into that crypto space because that's naturally where the, the discussion will lead over time. But um, I was looking at CB Insights and as you're mentioning valuations there, you know, I was looking at, at valuations at Angel and sort of Seed and those haven't changed too much. But then you're right, the later stage has kind of cratered or fallen off a cliff to be specific. Um, but you mentioned that those early stage valuations are the results of uh, how much money is needed to get these projects off the ground in the first place. And that doesn't change too much. So from your purview, looking at crypto projects, um, 
how much is actually needed to get a project off the ground and how do you determine what the right amount is? Because someone could say, I need 5 million to create this white paper and just to do a proof of concept. And someone else could say, look, we need 100 million to set something up. How do you think through what's needed to get something to, I guess, the MVP or to, towards launch at the early stage? Yeah, there's just no framework answer for that. Or I mean, I guess one can do a framework, which is you have to look at the product and and make an honest assessment of what is the MVP of the product um, to to make it, to distribute it, to test it, to get some arbitrary or target amount of data that enables you to raise that next round. Um, and that will be a company by company decision. So, you know, you can't produce the MVP of a AAA MMO game for $2 million. You can't produce the MVP of a, uh, a customer relationship management tool for $2 million. And so, um, you know, it's just impossible to provide a, a broad stroke answer on that one. Yeah, no, it's quite difficult. Um, and we've seen the evolution as well uh, of the crypto space where it's getting cheaper and cheaper to launch products or, or projects, should I say, uh, because of the availability of sort of white label products and things of that nature. Um, but coming to the towards the sort of third generation, so we kind of went through the, like the layer ones, layer twos, and now we're getting to sort of um, dApps and de decentralized platforms that allow people to spin up decentralized finance or, or decentralized apps quickly. I think Starkware is, is a company that's a good example of that. Um, what are you seeing there that's exciting to you in terms of the latest frontier of being able to create projects for cheap or you know uh, on the fly or quicker than we have in the in the past? Um, I think that there's a lot of work on solving the user onboarding issue as a broad category. And so that's enabling better uh, wallet infrastructure. That's basically having the UI UX be uh, with as with crypto as on the background as possible versus forcing you to engage with crypto a ton in order to onboard to the product. Um, there's a num there are a number of companies that are building there. I also think that it's a space that remains reasonably open in terms of we haven't seen a very clear leader emerge where they've they've solved some some big thing, right? So um you could look, for example, in the L2 space, um, in the, for example, immutable and polygon, and both of them will have solutions that are aiming to facilitate onboarding and they're trying to do their own work um with their own vertical uh, software solution or vertical uh, tech solution um, to allow their projects to to um, to onboard faster. Um, then you'll have the people that are trying to do just a specific effort around that. And we've invested again in CRM, um, proof of identity type stuff, proof of behavior, um, a, a general investment category of digital identity. There's a lot going on there. Um, you have the Starkwares um, of the world, which are just trying to solve scalability concerns. That's one category. Then you have the onboarding um and the the make it crypto as simple as possible for the person to issue for the for the for the game or for the for the company to, to operate in crypto infrastructure and for the user to onboard into that and then you'll have the fortes and stardusts and ready games and there's a bunch of, of, of things in that category um and so yeah, there's a lot of wide open space though. Um, it's a it's a young space. Everyone is working on these same solutions. I think there's categories that are that are excited and crowded, and that's that's just one of them. Just because it's such an obvious problem, right? Yeah. Do you think it's going to be a space where it's sort of winner takes all, and there'll be one or two leaders that take everything, or it's going to be more fragmented? And I know that depends on what specific category we're talking about, whether it's onboarding, whether whatever it is. But how do you see generally developing? Are we going to have the one or two big winners, or it's going to be fragmented? Um. So that's like an interesting one at a deeper level and that like I do think that when it comes to when it comes to these solutions like 
who do I want to facilitate my onboarding? Or for example, uh, think about um, how everyone uses Google and Facebook and a handful of things for social sign-in. And like, there's a net, like once you have a handful of those, like you don't really need more. And so I think solutions that facilitate onboarding tend to have really strong network effects because once the user has the, call it the login or the key or whatever it may be, um, or once they're used to a certain interface, then there's a very strong incentive for others to just conform to that standard. Um, but I also think that, that like that can happen sort of in the middle layer where um, so so a lot of people that believe in a chain agnostic world for example uh, will talk about how um, if you can abstract away chain selection and people can be using uh, executing the transaction in whatever chain makes sense and you just have a middle layer that allocates the transaction to whatever chain makes sense based on you know rules and optimizations that we can like that depends on who is pitching it to you um but then all the value in that case would accrue um to a winner takes most model in the middle versus at the bottom but you could also be part of the people that would argue that like no like the actual network effect is on ethereum layer one and like once everyone's there like everyone knows how to onboard there and so i do think that there are winner takes all mechanics in this market because it's like a lot of this 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 ecosystem is about creating and incentivizing networks and using tokens to do networks and like networks have network effects by default right like that's kind of like how it works and so the question is um like what is the network where is the network and so like where is the winner take all and in which layer of the market or how close to the consumer that winner takes all emerges Absolutely. Um, it's so interesting because we're going into this sort of exponential age and I listen to podcasts about this and they talk about Metcalf's law and how adoption rates and all that kind of stuff determines where values accrued. Um, and so you're right. It's sort of once you hit that critical mass and you become the sort of de facto in that space or you have such critical mass that no one else can go in, you become the sort of, sort of overarching or, or um, formidable uh, player in that space, so to speak. Um but on that note, actually, uh, you're talking about interoperability there. And that's an interesting thing because, you know, there's some maxis that think there's only, you know, layer ones or that's the way it's going to go. And then some people think, oh, we're going to go into this interoperable world. And there's some protocols that are trying to solve that. I think Polkadot is trying to be this one where you can kind of mix and mingle between the different ones. But um, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that, the ability for us to actually execute on that world where we're using multiple chains is sort of like, you know, um, as you wish, or there's a middle layer that kind of interfaces with all these different ones. Do you think, um, in other words, what are your concerns or what are the positives or, or drawbacks of that kind of world into developing? Um, I don't have a definitive view on this one yet because it's such a hard question and you're always studying the market and sort of changing your view and flipping back and forth as you go through it a little bit. Um, I, I tend to think that we will see very strong network effects around a small number of layers. I don't think that we should have multiple layers, but I I don't so like I believe in a in a in a um, multi-chain future, but not like dozens of chains, um, but perhaps three, four chains. Um, and I do think that the, if you go one layer deeper in those three or four chains, I think that you will see network effects around EVM as a language, right? Because like that's that's something that we think about. Um, for example, if a game says, oh, we're going to develop on this chain or that chain, we will at least ask ourselves, like, well, is it at least EVM EVM compatible such that anything that happens on this chain, you could very easily port to a different chain, right? And so we think about like EVM as the 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 ultimate network effect if you because from there if you agree on those standards um the the base level of composability is just like the software is not only open 
open source, but also all the contracts can speak to each other, we would think that the odds of um, interoperability um, in network effects at the EVM level are large. Now, that's not going into sort of like asset interoperability within game ecosystems because that's like much, much larger, but just like asset um, token movements, right? So your C20s or 721s or whatever it may be. Um, so, so yeah, really strong, um, much stronger conviction around a winner takes all or like a, at most a duopoly of languages at the bottom and then one layer up i think that will have three five chains something like that and then um, you can have the supernet or subnet type solutions that would allow for app specific blockchains within um, for example within polygon or within avalanche or something like that um, and in that case i do think that you could see multiple blockchains but not like true blockchains, more private and enterprise level blockchains, right? It's just like a different product. Um, and so there is the only place where I see the potential for multiple chains. Absolutely. I don't know if and that was for... too confusing because I'm working <laughs> through the answer as we go. No, that's fine. And actually just on that note, some of the audience might not know what EVM means. Do you mind just kind of giving them a quick understanding of what EVM means? Sure. So EVM stands for the Ethereum Virtual Machine, um, and um, it's basically the language. So um, if you have contracts that are EVM compatible, it means that they follow the standards process language um, that it takes to um, to run on Ethereum. Um, and so contracts for that are coded in Solidity, um, which is the language of EVM. Um, and if you have an EVM compatible contract, then it, 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 it will be compatible with the Ethereum Virtual Machine and other machines that are Ethereum-like in how they operate this decentralized compute solution that is the blockchain or that that is embedded in blockchains. Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty succinct answer. And a big part of, I guess, being successful in this world is developing hypotheses um, and applying sort of first principles as to where the market's going to go and just kind of thinking through it logically. So I guess my question here is, how do you apply first principles or how do you develop hypotheses as to kind of where to spend your time and where not to? Because as you mentioned, it's a ripe open space and you know you don't know what could take off. So how do you kind of apply first principles to your thinking, your logic, your investment strategy as well? Um, I wonder if like I apply apply first principles or in general if people apply first principles or if people are first principles people right like when an idea comes mm. to your head like does it come in the shape of a first principle idea or a non-first principle idea or like do you have some desire to get to first principles like i think like everyone likes to say oh everyone should be first principles investors whatever like that's i i don't know maybe right like i i've met a lot of people that wouldn't know what first principles investing are and are amazing investors and so um kind of subjective on on like whether that's the, the good or the bad but i certainly would say that that i tend to be first principles in how i approach things um and that's really i think just the result of um, being deeply introspective of thinking about the idea and like you chew on the idea long enough um and i think that what remains at the end of it is like that very core that would be the first principle and so my decision personally um, of spending time in crypto gaming um, or in crypto and then gaming um, stemmed from what I think is a first principle um, belief around the nature of property rights and civilization and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think that there's a number of other ones, for example, are focused on digital identity. I think that we also have a first principles thesis there too. Um, and, and then other stuff, I think that like more app specific, like, I don't know, like, once we've decided from a first principles basis to spend time in crypto gaming because of X, Y, and Z, then we're going to go into application underwriting. And the application underwriting, like I'm going to have a thesis that is very much like not first principles. It's about 
why this content is awesome and like what makes it special and blah, blah, blah. And I think that those become way more app specific or product specific and less about first principles. So yeah, I guess TLDR is directionally, I think in the major themes we're spending our time, we tend to have a first principles approach to it. And then at the product level, it becomes less first principles and product specific. Absolutely. Uh, there are times when I'll look at sort of similar projects or I'll, I'll look at the activity on nodes for, you know, similar types of projects or something that's akin to something I'm, I'm evaluating on Nansen or Dune Analytics or anything like that. Um, do you ever use sort of platforms or node activities or data points um, to make decisions or to help in your evaluation at all? Or do you kind of just like, look, this is so new. We're not even sure if there's anything like it or similar to it. Um, or we can't infer from something else. I'm just I'm trying to gauge your, your use of analytics or databases and things of that nature in, in, in how you evaluate either a project in the beginning or as it's progressing over time. Um, any data that we can get access to, we will use. Um, I think that depending on the quality of the data, um, and how relevant it is for the future, you will put more or less weight on it. And so we have had the benefit of underwriting games, for example, that had already released NFTs. And we were actively looking at um, how much money has been spent here and how our floor price is behaving and what is, you know, like spend time on the Discord and let's like look at um, analytics, like um, the ones you said, right? Um, uh, Dune and Nansen. I've also recently started look, uh, using uh, Gigamart, which is an NFT marketplace that has a bunch of good embedded analytics on it that personally, like to me, it gets me the fastest answer I want um, in that situation. Um, and so, um, yeah, like we'll use it. And then there's other opportunities, a lot of what we do that there's just no, there's no metric yet. And it's really about funding the future. And, and frankly, in a lot of cases, those end up making more sense and that they haven't rushed an NFT. Like it's very rare that someone will rush the asset much before the game and be able to generate a great healthy community there that's really around the game, right? There's a lot of speculation around assets at the time. And so um, a lot of the times that we have had the data, it's almost like the existence of the data um, was for the wrong reasons. And then and sometimes we've been fortunate that the existence of the data has been for the right reasons. And then obviously once the projects do elect to launch NFTs or to sell tokens um, or anything else that would feed data to us, then we will analyze that versus is the KPIs that we expected and is it growing and like how's it behaving and like all that stuff. And so um, we are data hungry. We love having data. We do weekly economic reporting that tracks macro data, tracks gaming equities data, tracks general crypto data uh, and uh, crypto uh, gaming data and like all that stuff. We review it as a team every week. Um, really? We all have like we have this, uh, the enterprise subscriptions to to things like Nansen. Like we are looking at it, um, and we're trying to use it as much as we can. Um, but we're not like a quant shop, right? And so it's it's just part of um, part of a large number of things we're considering. Well, that's interesting. I don't think I've heard too many VC firms that'll look at macro data all the way right down to the specific asset that they're looking at. That's pretty unique and interesting. What kind of macro data are you guys looking at? Is it like demographic or? I don't know what, what specifically do you guys evaluate or, or include in your assessments? Um, st st standard macro stuff, um, rates, treasury curves, um, commodities, um, that that type of like macro macro, and then yeah, um, credit cre credits and credit indices, equity equity indices, and then one layer deeper the gaming equity stuff, and then one layer yeah. deeper the crypto gaming stuff, and then um, on the crypto side similar right like we track the fear versus greed index, we track option volumes, we track stable coin holdings and centralized exchanges, like just basically it's a twenty some page report that has yeah. been 
decently automated, but still takes a, a fair amount of work from the team. And we think it's just important to be on top of it. It's interesting because I look at some of that data too. And one of the concerns I have is I don't know if the crypto space in general has had such a meteoric rise as a function of sort of liquidity because of unprecedented liquidity that's happened since 2008 um, in the markets and the correlation versus causation and all that types of stuff. Um, but my concern is that as liquidity dries up in the macro environment and, you know, it's going to affect crypto. And there's some um, data to suggest that, you know, things will go down in terms of overall um, value on chains and all that kind of stuff as time goes on. But when I think of the amount of liquidity that's been pumped into the environment, it's kind of like that gave people the ability to start projects, which probably would have never gotten funded prior to that. Um, and that might dry up over time. But do you ever think about, you know, the macro environment and the liquidity that's in the market? And maybe this crypto space has had a sort of, to some people's um, sort of description, it's a, it's a bubble as a function of just too much money going in. Um, or do you not think that that's, that's the, the the right way to be thinking about it? No, I, I I think it's the right way to be thinking about it, but there's like almost like pros and cons embedded in that. Like, um, so short term, a handful of years, one year, two, three years. Um, I think that the the impact of that liquidity is quite substantial. Um, I think that you know one can look at liquidity and say like, oh, it's the I don't know the stimulus checks that went into risk by individuals and and sort of like a more um, direct correlation between the buyer of tokens in the market and some like um, people getting money. Um, I don't know how much impact that has. I think that the biggest impact and one that takes a little bit to cycle through starts at the very top with institutional asset allocators and that um, we like if you have a fund today, and that's not our case, we're very fortunate that we have a, a, a large amount of committed capital um, to deploy right now. But if you had done your fund in 2021, um, and we deploy and you deploy that fund in two years, and now you have your next crypto fund to raise this year, um, it's going to be a tough time, right? And like some people will, will get it, but like, that's just like a hard, hard time to be raising crypto capital. Um, and so, and like, especially like as a first time manager, which is a lot of the, like that cohort was. And so um, now you're looking at your capital and you're saying, well, I was planning on deploying this in six months or one year. And like, I got to stay in the market for longer and I got a lot of my portfolio to mature so that my results are better. There's a bunch of considerations there. You're going to stretch that capital longer. And because you're stretching that capital longer, you're going to have less startup formation because less series seed companies are getting funded, less series A companies are getting funded. And so like a lot of like the mortality rates in the portfolios are going to increase. And so I think like startup formation generally suffers a lot um, in a period like this. Um, and by consequence, there will be less exciting products in the market or less shots on goal, right? Of whether it's an exciting game or I don't know, some, some other consumer application, um, or maybe it's the UI UX tools that facilitate. And so like generally speaking, right, I think that there is an impact between like the very top down institutional liquidity and like what happens, boots on the ground, what products are coming to market and like how does that impact market development? Um, over the longer term though, um, I think that it's interesting to consider capital reallocation, um, whether it's because senior leaders of nations are becoming younger and more comfortable with crypto. Mm -hmm. I think you see some of that in like a place like El Salvador, for example, right? Where you have like a young leader who's like, well, we have this inflation problem. And we're right. And I think that more of that stuff will happen. Um, mm -hmm. I think that at that like wealth, for example, ultra high net worth individuals, families, et cetera, a lot of the times that we're speaking to, um, high net worth families or individuals that are involved in space, it's generally not the 
senior patriarch of the family that's the most curious about the web3 stuff right it's generally the young people and they're fighting to get a little bit of allocation they're fighting to do a little bit and so i think that there is a long-term trend of people trying to allocate into um, new asset classes and i also think that there's a broader trend of inflation where um Crypto is overall a very, very small asset class. And so I think that as everything inflates, it can inflate more and capture the amount of capital flows that substantially move prices in that asset class is much, much smaller, for example, than if you were shifting, I don't know, like real estate holdings into uh, mid-cap equity index type stuff, right? Um, and so I think that over the long term, there's a very interesting liquidity trend that benefits the asset class. And over the short term, you have a tough uh, liquidity trend that will hurt startup formation. Yeah. And I think it's interesting as well. And I hope you don't mind me harping on the fact that you and I are typically, I guess, quote unquote, from emerging markets. But I think there might be a dichotomy here because in emerging markets, they feel the pain and pinch of inflation a bit more. And I think there's a hunger to look for other asset classes or asset types like crypto and things of that nature um, versus maybe in developed countries where this the status quo um, has worked for them so well that it's harder for them to move on from that inertia to adopt or to even think differently about an asset class. I don't know if that hypothesis will play out, but that's just what I'm thinking um, when I look broadly about it, especially when I look at places like Nigeria, where people have lost complete faith in their currency. They, they, they pretty much the money printing game has been up for the longest time. And so they're looking for alternatives. Um, and so I think about that quite a lot, but honing in onto the specific parts where you're talking about, you know, gaming and that intersection with crypto as well. Um, I, I recall that you mentioned in one of our previous chats that you're starting to see some traditional gaming uh, hubs or employees there leave and start sort of crypto native games and things of that nature. And I was wondering, are there any pros and cons to having someone from a traditional sort of gaming outfit, like let's say EA Sports or whatever it is, come and try and start a crypto native game? Um, they probably bring some expertise, but are there any pros and cons of those people coming into the space? Or would you rather look at a founder that's like never worked at a traditional shop and is kind of starting from scratch and they might not have perhaps certain biases um, that people coming from another um, or established house would have coming into the sort of crypto specific gaming aspect of things? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, in general, we will always fund the people who have significant product experience than someone who isn't coming from a traditional background and like experience of developing a bunch of games. Um, I think that the relative quality of talent in the market has shifted in that earlier on in the crypto bull run, um, a lot of the talent had a little bit of experience in games, like two years, five years, maybe they were junior in a big studio, or maybe they had like an indie game or whatever, but like they had a little bit of experience and a lot of experience in crypto. They were the, the DGENs that were deeply passionate about DeFi and saw an opportunity to mend their DeFi interests with their little bit of gaming experience. And that was like really good talent in the market early on um, because there was also a bunch of people that actually had zero um, gaming experience and were trying to make games because they're very passionate video game players, which I think is better than if you weren't even a passionate video game player, but there's a very big difference between loving games and like making games, right? Um, I think that today the the bar has increased as a function of the, the um, talent vortex, um, attracting more and more experienced people into Web3. Um, and today we have the benefit of funding people who actually have exited traditional game businesses to strategics to the big public companies and are now building a crypto thing or people who were in a big public company for 10 years and are now doing this thing or people who have been developing MMOs for 20 years and now not. So it's like now the the bar um, or the, the pool is getting better and better. Um, 
now we when we go into those conversations, um, we don't try to spend a lot of time testing if they know how to build games. That's not really the question. The question is more like, how does crypto make this different? What's the challenge of putting crypto in your game? Like, how do you think about like the fact that the economy may be open now? Or like, what does it mean if now the players have to buy the asset to participate? Like how do like, so it's like, we want someone who has really good answers around why they've chosen to do a crypto game. And they're not just trying to do a crypto game because they think it's going to be easier to raise capital or like, whatever it is. Right. Um, and so it's just really, really hard to get capital. And it's not simply a, a, a factor of having a lot of experience. And like the, the concern that you have um, is exactly the concern that we have. And that's part of a regular screening process of trying to bet on only the best founders, really. Yeah. And it's so interesting how gaming on its own has become such, it's become mainstream, so to speak. You know, when I was younger, um, you know, playing Age of Empires, was kind of like a subculture, like, you know, you're a gamer behind closed doors. But now it's like Gen Z, it's like, the gamers are like the pop stars of their generation, right? It's like, that's the, the main craze. And then you look at the data and you're seeing like how entertainment or the, the pie that gaming takes out of the entertainment budget from, you know, the entire world in terms of revenues is bigger than like everything else combined. It's like music, block, you know, blockbusters and all that kind of stuff. So gaming for the first time has become mainstream. Um, and it's so interesting that, you know, that has become the main culture of, of, I guess, the generations that are coming up after us. And now, obviously, with that intersection between crypto and here, but um, your interest in sort of gaming specifically on a personal level, where did your interest in gaming come from? Um, and kind of, yeah, just walk us through your personal experience and how you got into the, the crypto gaming uh, side of things. Was it happenstance or was there kind of a sequence of events that happened in your career that led you to this point? Um. I love playing video games. I've always loved playing video games as like <laughs> my earliest memories from childhood. Um, well, they're not just video games, but there's a lot of video games in there, right? Like I remember playing Mario Kart on Nintendo 64 and uh, the James Bond game and all that yeah. stuff. Like I remember going to the place where you used to rent VHTS tapes and play Street Fighter in the arcade there. Right? Like I, <laughs> like I've always loved playing video games, um, and I play. It's probably my my main form of entertainment um, media by like hours consumed, like per week. Right? I still play. I don't know, ten hours. So I, like if I have a free weekend, like I'll sit in front of the TV and play video games for a long time. Um, and so there's always been a passion for the category. Um, and earlier in my career, um, I was working at a large investment holding company and the CEO of that company had teenage sons and he was seeing his kids play a bunch of Fortnite and a bunch of other stuff. Um, and he wanted to have a perspective at the firm for it. Um, I was lucky enough to to be given the chance of you know helping form a view there um and ultimately led uh, that the the games investing vertical um from one asset to 10 assets and like that's where i started actually investing in games back in 2018 um and that was a a, a different role right because up to that point i had a few years of investing experience and a you know two decades of loving gaming and then trying to figure out um the reason why that immediately made sense to me is like one, the I always believed in the category because like I know it's huge. It's not a surprise to me that everyone's playing these things. It's like it's what I did with my friends. It's what I grew up doing, and I think that more and more people grew up doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And two, at like the very, like the very very personal level, is like this business is about winning deals um and winning deals is about getting founders to like you and trust you and like existing in some circles that allow you to get access to the best deals um and 
it's a lot easier for me to get a founder to like me if they're a video game founder than if it's an industrials company founder. Like I have had a lot of dinners with people who love playing golf on the weekends at the country club. And there's a lot of, like, we have a guy actually here at Bitcraft who's an amazing golf player and video game player. So I mean, no disrespect, but I really mean like that crowd <laughs> that is like, uh, video games gross. Right. I've had a lot of those dinners and it's like, I've, I, I couldn't, I couldn't latch on. Right. It's hard. Like I'll talk about baseball. I don't even know baseball that well. I mean, I'm from Brazil. Like I started like watching baseball <laughs> when I came here. Um, and so I started sitting across gaming founders and all of a sudden things clicked and I could get them to, to like me and trust me and I could exist and in, in 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 that in that social scene right and, and get traction there and so um it just made a lot of cultural sense for me um yeah. and then coming to the crypto side um i was at bitcraft um originally on the equity side um we had raised our first crypto fund um and i started getting the benefit of talking to crypto founders and understanding how the products they were building solved core concerns that i have as a gamer, as someone who put in 10,000 hours in an MMORPG and left and like lost all these like valuable assets that I spent a long time grinding to get and like there was no market or who tried realizing on that market and went to PayPal and like got scammed or and, like had to deal with all that stuff. And so for me, it was very clear like, oh, okay, like this, this actually solves a very critical user problem that I have had as a gamer myself. And um, I was having fun. So kind of how it went. Yeah, no, that's that's what it's about. You got to enjoy what you're doing and it kind of naturally shows to the people you're trying to attract. And then that's kind of a match made in heaven. Um, we're almost at time here. So I'll just kind of wrap it up in a few more questions. But um, one of the challenges I face, I mean, I get deal flow from all sorts of places. It's about scaling um, my availability and attracting that deal flow. I do that through, you know, the podcast. I have you know, some type forms and things of that nature. But, you know, you, there's only so many founders you can meet with and so many dinners that you can have where you meet cool founders. How do you sort of scale yourself to find as much deal flow as possible without kind of sacrificing quality? Um, and then also giving each of those founders that personal, you know, uh, rapport building, so to speak, you know, is it still manual, pick up the phone, cold calling email, or have you found a good way to kind of scale yourself to find deals? Um, That's tough. Um, I think scaling yourself to find deals is is easy. It's like just knowing a lot of people and generally having a good reputation in the market. As time goes by, there's more sources of people who want to show me a deal because they want to work with me on something or because they've heard about other founders telling you know their their sort of pleasure of working with us. Um, and so that kind of scales naturally. It's more of just like how do you then do how do you scale your filter? How do you scale the selection side, the underwriting, the due diligence, all that stuff? Um, there's no, there's no great answer. I mean, we just try to have as much like deal heuristics. Like we have, we have very strong heuristics um, and we have very strong lessons that are shared across the team because we do all of our work as a team. And that basically helps us do a first pass that's faster, right? So it's like being able to pass on something off of an email or like basically it's like if you can pass off a bunch of stuff off the email that clears some of the call backlog and then ideally you're going to be trying to pass on like the first 30 minute call and so after that when it becomes the time of like really doing the work you can't it's all about just like going there and doing the work um but i am fortunate that i'm part of a team um and there's a bunch of other people here at bitcraft um there are you know a few other individuals 500 individuals in the crypto side and then um, the same amount of people on the equity side um that are focused on on exactly that and so yeah, you scale that by um, 
by growing the organization um, or by being, you know, progressively methodical in, um, and how you filter for the deals. And like you like we're certainly not scaling organizational resources linearly with deal flow, right? Like that would be mm-hmm. insane. So it's mostly about being better pickers and better filters up top and then building the 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 team to make sure that we can do the the number of deals that we want to do, which is not those many. Yeah, no, absolutely. That sounds good. Um, I think there are positives and negatives sort of pattern recognition and being able to filter out quickly because at the end of the day, you're looking for outliers and outliers sometimes might not present themselves in the patterns that you've sort of developed over time um, or they might get filtered out and then they end up being a rock star later on. And even just in the general in the VC space, you know, sometimes that um, removes certain groups, maybe it's by gender or minorities or whatever it is. Um, And so I've seen that kind of I grapple with that problem where there's like a necessary evil to form pattern recognition and kind of how these strict filters, but then on the other side, what does that mean in terms of what we're missing out on and things of that nature? Um, but it's a, it's probably a discussion for another day. Um, hey man, it's I completely great agree. I completely agree with that problem, by the way. Um, and I worry about errors of um, omission way more than I worry about errors of commission, given the yeah. power laws nature of the game. Um, it's tough. Right. Yeah. There's no there's no answer to it, I think. Um ideally, like ideally, I think that our patterns are wide enough um that we're taking the call with a lot of people. And what I personally try to do, and again, it's the benefit of having a team, but if I think there's maybe something there, but I'm not sure, like if I'm on the line on something, I will always ask another individual on the team to take a look at it. Um mm-hmm. Right. And so I try to have a a bias towards involving others every time that I'm on the line on something. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Out of curiosity, uh, what kind of deals or what kind of founders are you looking for? Because we have thousands of people that listen to the show. And I guess how can people get in touch with you? Uh, Best way to get in touch with me is carlos at bitcraft.vc or pitch at bitcraft.vc. Um, and deals we're looking for, we are looking for founders at the intersection of games, interactive entertainment, um, with our broader thesis is the advent of the synthetic reality, which is this time where we're spending as much physical time as digital time. And we're progressively attaching more and more value to our digital selves and our digital experience or digital life. Um, that's crypto, not crypto, whatever it may be. Right. So for founders that are building games, interactive entertainment, media products um, or the infrastructure that empowers them, um, we'd love to talk to. Fantastic. Sounds good. Thanks for being on the show, Carlos. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Cheers.